Welcome to Consumed, the podcast that stokes conversations with eaters, drinkers, thinkers, and makers. I'm Jamie Lewis, and this 18th season, I speak with folks across California, from Santa Barbara to the Bay Area, covering subjects as varied as lab-grown meat and artificial intelligence, food writing and pizza, hot vegan takeout, Santa Rita Hills Pinot Noir, carbon steel skillets, closing the loop on food systems, happy meals, charcuterie, agritourism, and much more. I hope you get to hear all of it. Thanks for listening. Before we jump in, I want to share a few words about our sponsors. Casa du Metz is a boutique winery in Los Alamos celebrating its 12th year in this historic one-horse town. Their attention and motivation is captured by creating aromatic fresh wines that defy expectation. With three brands, Casa du Metz, Clementine Carter, and The Feminist Party, their goal is to highlight the beauty and bounty of Santa Barbara wine country. They have a particular sweet spot for Rhone variety wines sourced from Cool Climate Vineyard Partners in the Santa Rita Hills. Join them for their popular weekly speaker series, monthly wine club vineyard tours, Malibu sessions, and a unique tasting experience where you choose your own wine adventure. Join the discovery with Casa du Metz and their sister business, Babby's Beer Emporium, next door to explore quirky craft beers and bubbles while enjoying dumplings and spicy wings from Dim Sama. 2023 marks their 19th vintage, and they want to celebrate with you. Visit casadumetz.com for more information. Consumed is sponsored by Mid-State Containers Cargo Storage Containers and Refrigerated Shipping Containers for sale and rent in California. You may not understand how Mid-State Containers could change your life, but the truth is many, many guests on the Consumed podcast use Mid-State for their projects. Containers can serve as wine storage units for case goods, for private collections, and even tasting rooms. They can be refrigerated storage containers for breweries, kegs, and fruit during harvest for wineries. Mid-State Containers outfits coolers and freezers for ranchers, farmers market growers, orchards, and butchers. Containers can make great pop-up coffee bars and berry containers for root cellars. My guest from Season 10, Krista Flieger, from Lonely Palm Ranch, uses her Mid-State Container for an office on her property. Other ideas include schoolrooms, music and photography studios, and there are other things that can be grown, stored, and processed in a Mid-State Container, so use your imagination and get on their website to request a quote, midstatecontainers.com. Slow Food Co-op is your friendly neighborhood grocer, maintaining local, organic, and non-GMO standards. Slow Food Co-op sources from local producers, ensuring they offer their shoppers great food and household staples. With a mission to empower health and well-being in the community, they offer local produce, meats, low-to-no-waste foods, and wellness items. You can find Slow's only community-owned grocery store on their website at slowfood.coop and visit Slow Food Co-op in-store at 2494 Victoria Avenue in San Luis Obispo, California. Okay, on to the episode. Becoming a food writer tends to be a try-and-see-what-sticks process. Last time I checked, you can't major in food writing in college, so... Most folks who want to pursue that line of work need to either make it up as they go along or attach themselves to a knowledgeable mentor. For my part, I've done both, and the latter I've done with Diane Jacob, an award-winning food writer, cookbook author, and writing teacher based in the Bay Area. I've hired Diane to help with magazine pitches and book proposals, but I've also benefited greatly from her book, Will Write for Food, a guide to the food writing industry that's now in its fourth printing. 
Ask any food writer, and they'll tell you this is the gold standard for food writing. So I was delighted when Diane agreed to come on the podcast. You'll love her expertise, stories, and advice in this interview that I recorded in her home in San Leandro. I encourage you to sign up for her newsletter on Substack, by the way, if you love good food writing and want to find more of it. You can also see the recipes that ChatGPT made for her and the results of her following them. Okay, here's Diane Jacob. Diane, when you've been at cocktail parties and somebody says, what do you do for a living? What's the answer to that? Sometimes I say I teach writing because if I say I teach food writing, it seems like way too niche and people are going to give me a funny look. Like, I, I didn't know there were people who did that. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, I, that's the first question I have after that is nobody is born a food writing coach or teacher. What was the, what was the first job you had helping someone write about food? I think I was 22. I somehow uh, became the editor of a city restaurant magazine. Mm. And I had a staff of reviewers, and I wrote all the features. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, thank God I, I didn't I have to write the reviews because... I wouldn't have had any idea what I was doing. Yeah, because, 22. Well, 22. I mean, I, I grew up uh, in an Orthodox Jewish home, and we didn't eat very much outside the house. So the only restaurants we went to were Chinese ones, mm. and uh, which were not kosher, of course. Mm -hmm. But that's another story. Um, and so I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know the other kinds of food very well. I, I knew what I grew up eating, which was not what other people grew up eating and was not in any restaurants. But, um, yeah, I was kind of at a loss. <laughs> and <laughs> and I, I have some clips from that time, and I was looking at a, an interview I did with a chef. <laughs> he gave me a was recipe. Was it hysterical? Oh, my God. But the recipe was pathetic. And I, I didn't know how to cook that kind of food. I had no idea how to deal with this recipe from a chef. So, mm. yeah, that was a long time ago. I, I, had just, I had just graduated from journalism school maybe a year before that. I didn't know that you grew up Orthodox Jewish. That's really interesting when you say you had a very limited exposure to outside of your home cooking because you have such a wealth of, I mean, you are interested in all of it now. Oh, totally. Yeah. But I didn't tell you what I grew up eating. Yeah, what did you grow up eating? Well, first of all, I have to back up and say that 95% uh, of all Jews in this country, their ancestry is Eastern European, mm -hmm. Russian, European. Um, and somehow they all, I think... The real answer is racist immigration policies. Mm -hmm. They all um, came here in the last 200 years from Europe and Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Jews from other countries were not allowed in. And so they're the majority. And so I, I am not part of the majority because my parents uh, were Iraqi Jews from China. and uh, Which is... Uh, very, very uh, different. Definitely have to unpack. <laughs> That's not just something that the, someone says. The other part, the other side of the world. So uh, I grew up hearing the 
Judeo-Arabic language uh, in the Iraqi dialect mm. and Shanghainese, and my parents read Hebrew, and I grew up eating um, Iraqi Jewish food, Baghdadi, Bombay Jewish food, mm. Shanghainese food, and Japanese food. And you were eating it in Vancouver. I grew up in Vancouver, yeah. <laughs> and I loved, I loved all of it. Yeah. Loved it. So there was a little bit of Western food. My mother really didn't know how to make Western food. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't very good at it. She didn't like red meat. So, yeah. you know, making meat and potatoes w- never turned out well in our house. Yeah. And I would imagine that's really hard to integrate. You know, it would be very hard to integrate one's very specific lifestyle and food style into an exactly opposite one. I shouldn't say exactly opposite. But. Well, she, she had a sweet tooth, so she didn't have any problems integrating uh, cinnamon buns, donuts, <laughs> pound cake, chocolate chip cookies, bran muffins. Um, oh. She made a lot of that stuff. Yeah. Um, so that wasn't a problem. No, not at all. Yeah. Well, I think the first writing of yours that I ever read was the Lucky Peach um, piece, which had to do with your childhood. Mm-hmm. If you were going to sum that piece up in, I don't know, a couple sentences, what was it about? It was about my parents um, coming to Vancouver from Shanghai and discovering that they didn't fit in anywhere because, well, their natural predilection was to go to Chinatown every weekend, but they were not Chinese, and people there didn't speak Shanghainese. Um, they spoke mostly Cantonese. And the food was different. Um, And then when they tried to go to synagogues and temples, they did not fit in because everybody else was Russian or Polish or, you know, Eastern Mm -hmm. European and um, their heritage. And, you know, the prayers are different. The Mm -hmm. singing is different. The traditions are different. They, a lot of them spoke Yiddish. My parents didn't know anything about Yiddish. Mm And so uh, they didn't know where they fit in. And, and that's what the piece was about, was mm-hmm. how they finally decided, we're just going to cook and grow weird vegetables. Mm-hmm. And, um, <laughs> and that, that's going to be our identity. Uh, we're going to eat the food that we know, and it will remind us of who we are. Mm-hmm. Do you keep that, those recipes up? In your own kitchen? Do, you, do they, are they in rotation? I have them. I hardly ever make them because a lot of them require uh, legions of ladies in the kitchen who are oh. stuffing things. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of stuffed food. Yeah. Middle Eastern food is all about stuffing. I appreciate and, that. And uh, it's just too time consuming. Some of my favorite things of hers are deep fried, which I also never do. Mm-hmm. Um, but every once in a while, yeah, I'll make something. That piece wound up garnering at least one honor, I remember. It was in the uh, Best of American Food Writing, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It also won the mm, uh, an award from the Association of Food Journalists for Best Essay, mm-hmm. and it won the grand prize of 
Les Dames International, Les Dames de International, right? Writing MFK Fisher Award, which I mean, you and MFK Fisher, <laughs> two <laughs> peas in a pod. Oh yeah, right. Do you like her writing? <laughs> I do. I love I her writing. I love it. I yeah. love it. People yeah. talk a lot about her. I'm not sure how many have actually read her. I get kind of get that sense, at least from the folks that I've met who maybe younger readers, and they don't necessarily read her, but they know who she is. Good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's good enough. It's worth right? something. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. you can take tours of her house in Glen She's Ellen. Seen, that's it. Yep. Glen yeah. Ellen. Oh, that's so cool. Where Ruth Reichel talks about hanging out with her. Oh, yeah. Everyone who's ever hung up out with uh, MFK Fisher, who's a food writer, talks about it all the time. Yep, yeah. It's a badge of honor. Did you tour the house? No. We should go. I should go. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, I do want to go. I feel That feels fortuitous. Well, the piece itself, um, it wasn't very long, was it? I don't feel like it was... No, very long. No, it wasn't thousands and thousands of words. But it packed a very specific punch because it was nostalgic, but also kind of aching, longing. Well, like a wistful, but also clear-eyed about who your parents were, the challenges they faced, and um, and how they remedied that. Well, thank you. I'm I'm yeah. so I'm so flattered that you remember that piece. Of course. Well, I feel like that was kind of a capstone for you not a capstone but a cornerstone in your career yeah yeah well you helped me the way that we met was uh I needed help I just knew I wasn't ever going to get anywhere in submitting pieces to magazines if I didn't have someone who knew what they were doing around me and so I found you I was on a, a car trip my husband was at the wheel and we were on our way to LA for something and I just was hunting around and I saw your website about the book that you wrote will write for food, which is now in its which edition fourth, which is amazing. Thanks. Um, and saw that. And I think you even had either your phone number or something was there. And I called and you picked up and we just were chatting as my husband was driving us to LA, um, about, you know, I want to write, I'm not getting anywhere. I don't even know who to email. I don't know how to format that email or the pitch. I didn't go to journalism school, but I think I've got something worth paying attention to. And you, you, I hired you to walk me through the process for doing that. But you asked what my goal was, and there are lots of different goals. There are food bloggers and cookbook authors. And these days, what would you say, who are most of the people who bring you on? Uh, mostly they're experienced food writers who want to write a book, mm-hmm. a cookbook. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and you've written your own, you've collaborated with a couple of chefs, I think, to write your own cookbooks. So how do you think that industry, how do you think the food writing industry in general has changed over the past, let's say 20 years and then over the last 10 years? 20 years. Well... You know, the first edition of We'll Write for Food was in 2005, and I was still a snobby print person, Yeah. and blog, blogging had started, and uh, I didn't even include a chapter on blogging. Yeah. I'm like, 
what what is this? This is just anyone who wants can write something. No, no, I'm, I'm used to gatekeepers. There yeah. have to be gatekeepers. We have to have quality writing. And I don't know who these people are, what their credentials are. I don't know what they're doing. So, <laughs> and now you're you're writing digital all the well, time. Well, yeah, the second edition, which came out in 2010, had like a 7,000 word chapter on on food blogging. Mm-hmm. So I. I had to remedy that point of view and, and, and become a less snobby print person because, mm. um, you know, mag- at the time, uh, the ultimate thing was to be published in a magazine or a newspaper. Yes. Yeah. And, and now, uh, I mean, magazines are hanging on by a thread, mm-hmm. um, and so are newspapers. Santa Barbara um, News Press just went under this past I week. I read that. Yeah, 150 Terrible. years old. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah. Yeah, so in the past 10 years, then, what have you seen? Um, Food bloggers making a lot of money. Really? Yes. Still? Because I think of food blogging as, I I don't think of it as, it was at its zenith. There was like a fever pitch there for a while. Well, I mean, it was popular, but in the beginning, it wasn't about making money. Yeah. Yeah. Right, and then um, there was this big shift where you could get an ad company to place ads on your mm-hmm. website, and that changed the whole thing. And most food bloggers, ninety percent of their income comes from ads placement, ad placement yeah. on their websites, and and it's kind of it's a little old fashioned to even call them food bloggers. Yes. It's really they're really more digital content creators because yeah. they, they're they not just writing, oh, last night I had toast with mm-hmm. caviar. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're, they are uh, searching Google to find out what people are cooking right now. Mm-hmm. They're using keywords. They're experts in SEO. They're expert photographers. They, um, you know, they, they, they write for companies. They... Um, published cookbooks. They they have a huge business. They might they might have a staff. Wow, what a disruption! I mean, when you say expert photographers, yeah, probably I would say most of them perhaps self taught. Right? They've done such a good job. Yes, I, I the ones that I know, they just practiced and practiced and got very good at it, but they yes. didn't necessarily go to school for photojournalism or anything like that. Oh, no, no. Yeah. So self-trained, coming up from, you know, wherever they're coming from. I, one thing I really do like about that disruption is that it is not, it doesn't favor people in big cities. Not necessarily, at least back at the time, if you were in Santa Fe or if you were in... Gosh, I mean, they're, well, look at Reed Drummond, right? Yeah, yeah, Oklahoma. Right. On a ranch. Exactly. So there was this, if you could cut through and rise up to the top, right place, right time, right voice, right subject, um, you could move right up and you didn't have to be in New York City or London or wherever. And you didn't have to get, you didn't have to pitch an editor and get an editor to say yes before you could be published. With print, I, I I still suffer a, from some snobbishness with print. I can't help it. I just it's still the gold standard. Still, to, to me, okay, to me, 
Um, you don't think so? Seeing your name and, and your writing in print? Well, yes, I guess so, because, I mean, a lot of people who've had a, co- a w- website for years of res- with recipe databases, they, they still want a cookbook. They still want to hold exactly. something in their hands. Yep, exactly. Well, what I don't, I've never understood why I might get paid, let's say, I mean, the best job I ever had, this is very sad, but it, it was a dollar a word. And that was excellent. It. it was, I was very proud of that. Um, and that was for print. But then you go over to writing for any kind of digital, not any kind, but a lot of digital. And it's either free or you get $100 or it's, there are no printing costs. I mean, the, the cost to benefit ratio is so much greater with digital, but the, the writer gets paid so much less. Do you have any insight on that? I, I don't know why. I guess um, it might be because ads online are so much less expensive to buy than ads in print. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I don't know what the going rate is for an ad in the New York Times, but the last time I looked, it was $40,000 for a full-page ad. Oh, my word. Yeah. For one. And that was years ago when I looked that up. Wow. Uh, so, you It's like a car. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I think of a good in car. Terms of, <laughs> yeah. In terms of cars. Yeah. And you, it's not... I mean, remember AdWords, Google AdWords? Yeah. That mm-hmm. was the first advertising. That was like pennies, and you would make yeah. pennies. Yes. So maybe it came from that, that since advertising didn't pay much, mm. that um, they could pay people less. Yeah. What do you think people get wrong about, I mean, so much of, you said that a huge um, number of your clients now are people who want a book, a cookbook. Yeah. And is it cookbooks specifically or are yes. there some memoir people in there? No, uh, cookbooks. There's a few memoir people, but I, I'm not, I, I typically don't, I, I don't necessarily take people who want to write memoir because yeah. that's a whole other kind of writing that's really based on fiction technique. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm a nonfiction person. Yeah. Uh, with those people who want to write a cookbook, do you see any patterns in the kinds of things they're trying to write? I mean, there are the cookbooks have evolved quite a bit. I'm not an expert on that, but uh, from what I can tell, it does kind of become more memoiry. Yeah, there's a trend right now to do more memoirish type of writing in cookbooks. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been going on for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Just to tell more personal stories, have more text. Uh, the head notes are longer. Yeah. Um, people are interested in your, you know, queer background and t- your queer upbringing in Taiwan or whatever mm-hmm. it is, you know, mm-hmm. and how you became who you are. So, yeah, it's not just about, you know, recipe for, you know, oxtail soup. Right. What do people get wrong about wanting to write a cookbook? Um, I think they don't really understand that it's a book. Mm. And the people that publishers want to write books are 
writers mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because a lot of the people who want to write a cookbook are chefs or home cooks mm-hmm. and they're not necessarily writers right so yes that has that that is on the list of what publishers want obviously because you've got to have credentials as a cook or a chef mm-hmm. uh, but you have to understand that you're creating a manuscript that needs to be turned in on deadline. Yeah. Uh, you may or may not be in charge of photography. If you're a food blogger and you're a really good photographer, you might be in charge of photography also. That would be so hard for me. I just, I can't imagine how people do it because, like, that's a whole other book-sized project to yes. create the photos for the book. Yeah. Well, and to have no authority or agency with that if you're going with the traditional publishing model. I mean, so often I think people don't get to choose, right? The photographer. Well, if you're, you know, I just, um, was just talking to a woman who has 315,000 followers on Instagram Mm -hmm. and she's a very good photographer. So she asked me, you know, if we work together on a book proposal, will I have to do the photos? And I I said, well, you know, they're probably going to look at your photos and decide that they're, they're clearly good enough if you have that big of a following, Mm -hmm. but it's going to be so much work for you to be the photographer also that you might not want to be. Ah, okay. Yeah. Well, you bring up followers, which is another, I mean, that's just such a huge discussion. Leading into that, I will say one of the things I appreciate so much about you and your voice and the work that you do is how brutally honest you are about, <laughs> about oh, don't, she's putting her hands over her face. No, it honestly, <laughs> to have someone be like, look, no, you have to set realistic goals would you say that's accurate? I feel like you say that. Uh, that doesn't sound unreasonable. No. Set realistic goals. Here are the parameters. And then, uh, yeah, just be be smart about how you go about it. Don't just flail into the darkness. Um, one of the things you've had to be very honest about with a lot of people is this problem of having a platform. And I call it a problem because... To me, it seems like a real problem. It's a self-selecting, the people who have the most numbers are the ones you hear from. That's where where publishers and different companies put their money because it's a sure thing or close to, it's a surer thing than, say, Jamie Lewis from San Luis Obispo. Yeah. Um, But that's problematic, I think. Um, Do your readers know what a platform... uh, Listeners, sorry. Do your listeners know what a platform is? Uh, Let's just say it for for fun. What do you call a a platform? Well, a platform is is your way of reaching people who are interested in what you're doing. Uh, Like they... If you want to write a cookbook, who's waiting for it? Yes. Where are they? Are they collected somewhere? Like they follow you on Instagram Mm -hmm. or or you're doing videos on TikTok and they follow you there? Mm -hmm. Are they, like, where are they? Do you know where they are? Can you find them? Mm -hmm. Do you know anything about them? And do they already 
care a lot about you. They yes, they they sh- in the best possible world they they're your fans mm-hmm. and they they want you to write a book or or mm-hmm. you know to they want you to succeed. Yeah, well, that's. I know that you're not here to make judgments on it, but I will. I know that your job is very much to forecast and help people get the book that they want. Am I right about that? Yeah. Yeah. I struggle with the whole platform thing because it's a nice word for I, I, followers. It's like, that's exactly what it is to me. It's who are the people who follow you? It's like being in a wine club that it's considered the gold standard of getting of, of wine marketing is if somebody likes your stuff enough that they're like, you know what, here's my credit card. Send me whatever you make. I know I'll be happy with it. That's what a follower is to me. Like I'm that's good. a fan. That's a devoted follower. Yes. Like Definitely. I like what you do enough. I'm not just going to put the heart next to it. I'm going to, I will like everything you do. I'm banking on that. I'm going to spend money on you. Yes. Right. So that's, sticky though because there are a lot of people who are not look at me look at me but they are so gifted and they have something really important to say that should be read I worked with someone like that recently I got an email from someone who wanted to uh, write a book about the history of anchovies in Europe oh how cool and uh, he did not have any published uh, writing Mm-hmm. He wrote an excellent proposal that he wanted me to read and tell him what his chances were. And uh, I was so captivated. I'm not interested in that subject, mm-hmm. but it's kind mm-hmm. of like, you know, when you're reading The New Yorker and you're on page seven of a piece on radioactive isotopes <laughs> and you're like, I don't care about the subject. What am I, how did I get to this page? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Where am I? (laughs) Yeah. How did this happen? I blacked out and then here I am. Um, And it was, he was really good. And he had been a filmmaker. He had done all kinds of odd jobs and um, he was living in Europe. Um, He told me he's, I was, I was on vacation in uh, Mexico when he contacted me and he told me that he had sold chiclets on the beach as a kid. Oh my word. And I mean, he was he was a character yes. with a capital C, right? And so, I thought this guy is probably going to be able to pull this off, yeah. and he did. He found an academic publisher. Oh, really? And they uh, took the book. Oh, how cool! I'm so glad yeah. to hear he that. He didn't have any followers. Yeah, he, I mean, he had very few. He didn't. Yeah. Unlike this other person who just hired me today, who has three hundred and fifteen thousand followers. Mm-hmm. And she said, do you think I could get a book deal? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Although, <laughs> wasn't there, I feel like I read, you have a wonderful newsletter that I read every single time. Although you just moved to Substack and I haven't subscribed and I will do that. Thank you. Um, which is another topic we should cover. But um, in the newsletter, you mentioned something like, I think you mentioned an actual number figure that was being bandied about at the time, and this maybe was even like four, five years ago, what kind of number you need in terms of your followership to be able to get the attention of well, a major publisher? I've been to countless conferences where this question comes up, and the panelists will never answer it. Hmm. 
um, the panelists are the gatekeepers, you know, there's the agents and mm-hmm. the editors. Um, but I did interview an editor at a cookbook company, and she said, you're probably not going to get a book deal from me unless you have 45,000 followers. Yeah. However, a former client of mine has nowhere near that number of followers. Uh, she's very, very good at what she does. Um, she's a chef. She's a cooking teacher. She mm-hmm. went to the Cordon Bleu in Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, she flies a plane. She has a spice oh, wow. company. She's on her fourth book with the same editor. Oh, she does not have anything remotely close to that number. Yeah. So, you know, they don't. They don't know. They 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 would like. They would, mm-hmm. they would like every one of their authors to have at least that many, but mm-hmm. that's just not going to happen. One of the things you told me early on that qualified you to work with someone like me was the fact that you had been an executive editor, editor or editor-in-chief for many years, and you knew how to say yes and no to things, how to choose and to see what separates the wheat from the chaff in terms of writing that can be published. Yeah, um, yeah. The, the chaff is about ninety five percent. Yes, <laughs> you're so funny. I just I love that you can say that and smile and laugh because that's a really that's a harrowing number. It is. Yeah, and yet people get published all the time, and they keep trying, and even as you trying. tell them, you yeah. know. Yeah. I wonder what kind of a dent you put in in terms. Of, well, I was going to say. I wonder what kind of an impact your career is having on, you know, n- multiple generations of, of food writers as you try to tell the truth. I wonder how people are learning and changing. Well, I mean, the current crop of food writers, they're, they're writing newsletters. Yeah. They're writing uh, blogs. And uh, they don't have gatekeepers. Yeah. They just, the gatekeeper is the public. Mm-hmm. And whether or not they can grab enough attention for what they're doing. It's not editors. Yeah. So it's different. Yes, it is different. Do you find, though, that the work you've done as an uh, an editor in choosing pieces, do you feel that that still helps people, people who are, you know, their, their only goal is to make it to the public? Um, sure. I mean, when people hire me, I'm going to end up editing their work. And, yeah. And... Um, it's it can be a shocking experience for mm-hmm. <laughs> for for many um, who haven't been edited, uh, but um, hopefully I'm I'm improving it. That's yeah. the job of an editor is to improve your work and to tell you how to improve it. Mm-hmm. That's actually I hadn't thought about that. So many of these new food writers have never been edited. That's got to be hard. That first go around. Well. You for know, them, I, I mean, mean, even Reed Drummond, I mean, she, the pioneer woman, she wasn't edited at first. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, she still knew. She knew. She knew how to tell a story. She knew how to grab people's interest. Mm-hmm. She knew how to write well. She had, I think she, I think she had a background in marketing. She did. Right. Yep. Copywriting. Yeah. So she already knew mm-hmm. what kind of writing works. Yeah. And that's a good background. Because you, you have to really, marketing is a great way to learn how to write. That's a good segue, actually, to uh, 
I don't know if you remember. I got to write for your blog at one time. Yes. Uh, because I was frustrated. I was picturing myself writing for, you know, Bon Appetit and for food and wine and for, you know, I had these high goals of um, writing for Goop or whatever. It didn't have to be print, but it just had to be big. And I, you, I think you told me first, listen, they only want an expert. They don't want somebody who's like, well, I'm going to Seattle for the weekend and I'm going to write about such and such. They want someone from Seattle who knows all that stuff, or at least who has a longstanding relationship with the city and is on top of new things. And, you know, where's the newsworthiness? So focus on what you know. And I was feeling like, no, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep trying. And then I went to the wine writer's symposium, got in, was felt so lucky. And those panelists are amazing. I think you were a panelist one year. Um, And I sat down at the final dinner next to a guy who was the food, the wine uh, writer and editor for one of the biggest newspapers in the U.S. And Long story short, I found out that it was actually his side job, his real job. He worked for the um, National, uh, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, <laughs> 40 hours a week, 40 wow. plus hours a week. And being the wine writer for such and such uh, newspaper was just a side thing. And I thought, what the hell am I doing? I mean, this guy doesn't even have a full time job at a newspaper. How could I possibly expect to? So anyway, I went home to San Luis and I started focusing on our place, which is a burgeoning place for tourists. I mean, it's a destination. Yeah. And I felt like if I could really bulk this up, focus on home, focus on what I know, I think I could be successful. And over the course of a while, this podcast came about and, um, but in any case, the, the um, Reed Drummond thing is interesting because she took skills she had learned elsewhere and brought them somewhere to focus on home and to build up something around where she was an expert. Absolutely. She was really good at that. Yeah. 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 And writing about it for your newsletter, you gave me a chance to, to kind of, I don't know, process that. And um, you were writing about freelancing. I was. Yep. Yep. Just tired of yeah. trying to get the attention of yeah. any of them, honestly. Yeah. You yeah. know, um, I had a client a while ago who had been on Master Chef, mm-hmm. came in fifth, uh, wanted to write a cookbook, had never had anything published. And um, she was, I mean, as you can imagine, she was a real go getter, mm-hmm. super hard worker. And so um, I asked her to write some uh, some essays for me because she wanted to write a memoir. She didn't want to write a cookbook. And she, she just knocked me out. They yeah. were funny, um, touching. Uh, she, I don't know, I don't really understand how she knew how to do it, but she, <laughs> she yeah. did. Yeah. And uh, so I said, okay, let's get three of these published, and then you'll look good to a publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, she had a big following because she 
had been on Master Chef, yes. and people follow. They get very involved with those contestants because you watch them week after week, right? right? So uh, I sent uh, I sent her to the Washington Post. He took mm-hmm. the story. I sent her to Bon Appetit. The editor took the story. Oh my word! And I think I can't remember where the third one went, but it was some big national magazine. Wow. Was she writing about being on MasterChef? No. Oh no, wow. she was. She's Puerto Rican, and she was writing about uh, her mother's um, her p- pork roast with the crispy skin, and how one Thanksgiving um, her mother had made this dish where you have to stay up all night sautéing it, and and it was resting and. All the relatives were in the dining room mm. and waiting for this magnificent, huge piece of meat with this crispy skin. And then the mother came in, and someone had torn off like a third of the crispy skin. Oh my gosh! And, and she had like a nervous breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> so, and it, it was hilarious. It's, yeah, it's in the Washington. It's it's that's it's amazing. still on the Washington Post website, and it was hilarious. Um, and so, yeah, she she just. Every once in a while, there are people who don't fit the mold, mm-hmm. and uh, she got a six-figure book deal, oh and gosh. she's um, her deadline's coming up for oh, her wow. manuscript. Are you and are you doing editing for her on that? No, okay, no, she doesn't really. No, she doesn't need my help. She has she has a big editor and yeah. publishing house behind her, and she's going to be fine. That's very cool. <laughs> Tell me about your experience with working with. Um, uh, major, you know, commercial publishers versus self-published folks. What are you seeing? Are you seeing that number or that that um, compliment change? Uh, well, it's easier than ever to be self-published. Mm-hmm. Um, the woman who just hired me today um, self-published her first cookbook and has sold twenty thousand copies, and wow. said that by the end of the year she will have sold twenty thirty thousand. That is incredible well she's the one that has three hundred and fifteen thousand followers on instagram but obviously she's a really good promoter Mm -hmm. um so and there are other people who just want to publish their family recipes and couldn't care less how many copies it sells and there are people who just want to have a book and don't care how many copies it sells one guy called me one time very early in my career he called me (laughs) and he said I just self-published my book and I have 5,000 copies in my garage. What do I do now? Oh, oh my gosh. That's my worst, worst nightmare. That's <laughs> like, it's a little late to ask that question, buddy. Yeah. Um. Get ahead of it, man. Wow. Light a match. Uh, oh, give donations to the library. I don't know. A bonfire. Bonfire, oh. yeah. Bonfire would be good. Oh, gosh. Uh, yeah, uh, so, you know, people self-publish for all kinds of reasons, mm-hmm. and um, that's a completely different business than traditional publishing, which, uh, you know, which is mostly held by gigantic international companies and uh, that make millions of dollars. But they won't necessarily promote the book. no. Not unless you're Ina Garten or yeah, exactly you know, the woman from Magnolia. She right. had the top-selling cookbook the last two years. I remember out, that. I remember you saying Ina. That. Yeah, and she's not coming at it from a food. She's coming at it from having been on, you know, having a show about remodeling. Own, yeah, she homes. has her own network. Yeah. Yes. 
I had somebody on this podcast who was on the Magnolia Network with the show, and um, yeah, they're doing incredible things. But yeah, it, it's. I think that was a headline on your newsletter one time. The number one best-selling cookbook this year wasn't written by a chef. Or, you know, I mean, I guess Ina Garden isn't a chef necessarily, but... She was a caterer. Right. That's a closer connection than yeah. Fixer Upper. So it just it goes to show what having a platform, so to speak, really does. It means sales. Sales. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But publishers are willing to take more chances on people now if there are reasons to, in their mind, like, you know, publishing's, for example, publishing's been a very white business. Yeah, yeah. And they know that, and it's still a very white business, and so they know that they have to diversify. Mm -hmm. So if somebody wants to write a Ghanaian cookbook, they might overlook the fact that they don't have, you know, 100,000 followers. Mm-hmm. 100, 000, well, that wouldn't even be very big, 100,000. would. You know, it's pretty good. I, I, I feel that's impressive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I'm not, the, I'm not the one deciding. I'm nowhere near that amount myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, lately, I mean, you made the decision not too long ago to go to Substack. Was it like a year? Two years ago. Two years ago? Yeah. How... How was it to make that decision? What convinced you, and how has it been? Well, uh, my friend David Leibovitz, who's a huge uh, blogger and cookbook author, mm-hmm. he lives in Paris. He's an early adopter, and um, he got on very soon after they launched. And, uh, and then he started telling me I should. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I went is because I was sending out my newsletter through Mad Mimi and I had to pay every month to send oh, it. Mm-hmm. And at Substack, you didn't have to pay anything. Yeah. It was free. How many people were you sending on Mad Mimi? What, what number? I don't know. 4,000? Okay. Not, not I'm just wondering, like, because there are thresholds, you know, for yes. how much you pay. Right, right. Yeah. And it wasn't hundreds and thousands of dollars. I mean, for David, it was because he had huge readership yes. and he was paying a lot of money to get his newsletter mailed out. Mm. And so that was, you know, sounded really good to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was telling me that I should do it, that it would be good. And so for once I didn't procrastinate as long as I usually do when he tells me something mm. and I did it. And it's just a lot easier to use than WordPress, which mm-hmm. is what a lot of people were using for blogging. Yeah. And I guess I was writing my newsletters in Mad Mimi. So there's just all this text stuff you had to know. You had to know what HTML Ugh, was. Such a pain, yes. It's just a pain. And WordPress, yeah. uh, Substack has just eliminated all that. You just they, There's a template. You just type. You want to put a link in. You just click yeah. add link and, you t- and it Super adds basic. it. It's, it's pretty basic, yeah. And, it's, and I like that it's content forward because it's about the actual substance of what you're writing because it's so it's kind of old-fashioned in the way that blogging used to be where it's about type Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's not about video and photos although people use substack just to have i i think i i think i read this fashion blog one time where it was just 
hundreds, it seemed like hundreds of pictures scrolling endlessly through it. Mm -hmm. And I just got kind of burnt out. Yeah, for sure. But you can, you can use it for that too. But my understanding, Substack is a different model because the author gets paid. Yes. Well, the author gets paid if you choose to do a paid newsletter. And, and of course they want everyone to do a paid newsletter because that's how they make money. So they're going to start pressuring you're going to get these emails so when are you planning to go pay <laughs> how's it going, how's it going? <laughs> um yeah so they want that but but lots of people never go paid and yeah. are v- content to just write their newsletter and send it out so so yes i did go paid and and it was nicer because instead of money going out uh money was coming in that's cool and that that's was a really cool. nice change because i you know, I did my newsletter for free since 2005. It was really I did my, valuable. Thank you. I did my blog posts for free since 2009. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it, it was it's, it was still free for subscribers. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. that now there's a paid option for subscribers, and yeah. if they want to support my work, um, then. Um, it, you know, it's not a lot of money. They can support this new venture, and um, and I get a little bit of income. Yeah, and it's a way to align with you and support what you do, which is so yeah. cool. Um, the thing I really value about your um, of the newsletter is at the end what I've been reading. You say what I've been checking out, and there's this list. It's you do the work for me. That's the goal. Yes. Yep. So I can poke around and look at. You know, I'm not in the business of making cookbooks, so I can kind of skip those ones. But then you have something on like the whole Alison Roman thing that happened a couple years ago. And you just direct, uh, you you fragment attention into other things. And I, I well, really I'm just, like that. I, I mean, I'm interested in what's going on. So I just yeah. make a list. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Thank you. Uh, so you said that you've had a lot of success lately because of a particular venture with AI. So what did you do with that? I devoted um, two newsletters to poking around with uh, chat GBT and, uh, and well, I also started poking around with BARD later, which is Google's um, mm-hmm. AI software. Um, just seeing well what 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 should writers be doing with this um what does it understand what is it good at what isn't it good at um and it was really it was really fascinating to to do that have you poked around i have yeah i have what happened uh i was freaked out and (laughs) on the verge of crying (laughs) I mean, how did you feel when you first tried something in there? Wait, wait. Why were you on the verge of crying? Because it could, I really saw, not just as a writer, but specifically as a copywriter, that is, I will soon be out of a job with that. Like, it's just, I wouldn't yep. blame them for doing that. Yeah. How could you? Yep. You know, anyway, it, it's, I cried about that. <laughs> But I'm sorry. No, it's okay. I also see great potential for using it as a tool. Great yeah. potential. Yeah. But 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 viewing it as a tool only, not as a it can't save, you know, it it's only repeating. It's it's uh what do you call it? It's a short circuit. 
It can only regurgitate what's out there. Yes. It can't actually innovate And that is yet. the biggest problem. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I mean, for anyone who doesn't know, you just, you go to the ChatGBT website or BARD and you, there's a field and you type in whatever you want, like, uh, write my bio. Yeah. Oh gosh, I hadn't um, even thought about that. I, I did not. Someone sent me, someone sent me my bio that they put in and it was so, it was like marketing copy. I would never write anything that way. I mean, being a journalist. <laughs> yeah. And Diane is a respected teacher. Totally. It's a know. lot of stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm not doing that. Um, but you, you can ask it all kinds of, you can ask it to, uh, you know, uh, write questions for this interview. Oh my gosh. You, you could ask it that. to design a class for you. Uh, you had it write a recipe though. I had it write a recipe and then I asked it, well, where'd you get this recipe? Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of hemming and hawing in the answer. (laughs) If, if you can imagine a software program, hemming and hawing, a lot of kind of cloudy kind of writing about, Oh, you know, I have hundreds of sources and, uh, I, I, uh, you know, confabulated them all into this excellent recipe. Um, mm-hmm. No, actually, it wasn't excellent because then I tried it. Oh, and it didn't work. What was it a recipe <laughs> for? I I was going through my um, baking with miso obsession, mm. so I asked. I'd been meaning to try peanut butter cookies with miso. So, Lovely. So that's I asked for a recipe for that, and then I made it, and it made a super super soft dough that was kind of like cream. Oh, and oh. you know, that is not what you need in a peanut butter cookie. No. You have to be able to roll a peanut butter cookie into a ball yeah. and then put it on a sheet pan and then press it, and mark it with a press fork. it with the tines of the fork. Yeah. Right. Well, you can't, you can't roll that into, you can't roll cream into a ball. It was literally the, the, like the super soft. Wow. So I added, I added, uh, you couldn't even bake it. Flour. Well, not in its... I couldn't roll anything into a ball. Yeah, right. I didn't know how you were going to bake it. No. I mean, you could throw it onto a sheet pan. That's kind of what I was <laughs> See what happens. Yeah. Um, but so, no, I added some flour to firm it up. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I could roll it. But then it still was a little soft. I put it in the fridge for half an hour. But, you know... I, I bake, so I know what you're supposed to do. Yeah. I, I don't know. Somebody else who doesn't know how to fix that would have just thrown it out. It tasted yeah. good. Oh, that's interesting. Um, there was some language I really didn't like about the miso. It was like, well... Uh, Did it call could... it exotic or something? Oh. It didn't go that far, but it was kind of hedging like... Well, you could use one tablespoon or you could use four, but... You should taste it and see, because four might be too much. Well, um, just make a decision you can't, and put that in. That drives me crazy. Do it to taste in baking when it's like no, no. You feel that I, I, you're the recipe writer. No, absolutely not. You don't yeah. want to make people go through. You don't want to make people add one tablespoon and then taste it, and then add another no. tablespoon and taste to it to a dough. You know, you're the, supposed to be the expert, and yeah. you just tell them how much. And if they don't like, if they taste the dough and they don't like it. Then maybe they want to add more. Maybe it was too much. I don't know. Yeah. Well, but, but also it's, I, it's your recipe. Yeah. Yeah. So it isn't about what everybody else would like. Yeah. 
So that was one mm. problem. Um, and I, I couldn't, even though I added more flour, I couldn't, you know, I would put the tines of the fork onto the top of it and then we would stick to it <laughs> and, and it, it just didn't work. But, yeah. So the cookies, I baked them and, and they, they were actually, they were quite good. Oh, wow. Um, they were very tender. Uh-huh. Um, and I loved the aftertaste of the miso, like a little salt hit yep. at the end was really nice. There was just that little savory umami thing going on at the end, and you didn't quite know why, but it was yeah. good. Um, and so I put a picture of my peanut butter cookies, which, of course, did not even look like peanut butter cookies. Yeah. Because peanut butter cookies are thick, and they yes. have the, the, the crosshatch or the tines or the you know, imprint on the top of them, um, usually. So... So that was one problem, but the thing that really drove me off the deep end, oh, it didn't, it didn't give me a yield, so I had oh. no idea how many cookies this was going to make. It made right. 60, which is way more than I need, oh, wow. than any human needs, yeah. um, but they were very good, and they lasted in my freezer for a while, yeah. um, and there was no head note. So then I said, give me a head note, and it started off well because it talked about, well, what is miso, why should you use it in baking? Mm-hmm. Um, that was that was good. Then this is what you don't want in a product that scrapes the internet. Yeah, there's a lot of really bad writing on the internet. Yeah, and the kind of writing that I truly dislike in recipes is make this fun festive dish for your family, and it will become their new favorite book, uh, new favorite dish. You can take it to potlucks, and everyone will love it. Yeah. You know, this totally generic... It feels like the Pillsbury... family. Yeah. Yeah. Jazz that is has nothing to do with the recipe. Mm-hmm. That's what it gave me. Oh, so very generic. Generic, generic you know, happy writing. Yeah. And I said... This is too generic. Could you please write something that's specific to this recipe? And it couldn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, it said it had talked about miso in the beginning, but that was the extent. I feel like you're describing that recipe is a great encapsulation of our experience with ChatGPT thus far. The yes. thing that freaks me out is this is iteration one in terms of the public's interaction with chat GPT. I mean, it's, yes. it's been out there, but now it's a real thing and we see how far along it already is. Um, I mean, the, yeah, the party is out of the box already. Yeah. So, but, but the fact that there's something very impressive with these cookies, but also something really wrong with these cookies. That's, that is chat GPT. I yes, think it is. in general, in a nutshell, in a so nutshell, yeah. In a peanut shell. Peanut yes. shell. Very good. <laughs> um, well then I asked it to give me a photo. It has a sister site that can yes. do photos and it gave me the most God awful photo. <laughs> it looked like slices of baked sweet potato with, where a giant fork had mashed them. I don't know. Like, <laughs> but of course I put it in the blog post so people could see it. Yeah. It was on like a picnic table kind of, you know, red checkered kind and of And weird, top. kind of like stretched like bubble gum. All of the pictures kind of have this quality to them. They're, yeah, they, you're, 
You're just not sure what that is. Yeah, what am I looking at exactly? <laughs> so that didn't inspire confidence. But I, I have I have used it. Um, I, I was working with this guy a while ago who lived in South Africa, and he was a, a weed aficionado, mm. and the South African government had just legalized marijuana, and so he wanted to, to write a marijuana cookbook. Yeah. But he, he didn't know how to write a recipe. Because why would he know? You know, it yeah, wasn't right. what he, he... He was a university professor, I think. Mm. Um, and so I told him, well, you know, you could probably put your recipes into ChatGBT and tell it to format it like mm-hmm. a recipe, and maybe it would do that for you. And it wouldn't be perfect, but it would mm-hmm. be more like what a recipe should look like. Yeah. Um, and so... And then I felt bad because I thought, well, this is work that actually people do for a living. Yeah, right. I know. And uh, am I eliminating work for someone? Um, probably, yeah. 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 Um, then I tried Bard, and I asked it to give me a peanut butter cookie with miso recipe, and it did. And I said, where'd you get the recipe? And I was prepared for the same, you know, vague answer. Yes. Uh, it said... I went to these three, these sources and listed them. And it went to uh, Food 52, which is a oh, very great. credible and reliable yeah. source. It went to Sally's Baking Addiction, oh, who's yes. a blogger who's had a blog forever mm-hmm. and is very successful. Yeah. And it went to the New York Times. These are three good sources. But what blew my mind about the New York Times is that the New York Times recipe is behind a paywall. A paywall. And so does it give you the whole recipe that it pulls from? Well, it gave me a link to the New York Times recipe, but because I have a subscription, I could you, see it. Yes, but right. if you didn't, you wouldn't be able to. Right. Right. Whereas the other two are not behind a paywall. Yeah. And then I thought, can it go behind a paywall? This is really depressing if it can go behind a paywall. But... Other people that I've talked to about this said maybe it cut a deal with the New York Times where it can use the content. Let's hope. Which is more likely that Google would do something like yes. that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, okay. That's wow. good. Did the cookies turn out okay? I didn't make that recipe. Oh, okay. It was pretty similar. Yeah. Um, but I was just interested in how forthright it was about where it got the recipe. Now, now when I went, then I went, well... When I was trying to figure out where ChatGBT got the recipe, I fed the first 52 letters of the recipe into Google with quotes I've to done it. see yep. if the recipe would come up. And, and the first recipe that came up wasn't even for a peanut butter cookie. It was for some other kind of cookie. Wait, did it come up verbatim? It didn't. Did a it? recipe came up. Uh-huh. Okay. But it was for another kind of cookie. Huh. But it was a little similar... And it was on some government agriculture website. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that was really interesting. That's random. But but I don't know how many other sources yeah. there it had. Because uh, it doesn't say. Asking an AI platform to do a recipe is such a good it's such a good foray into AI because it's teaching you how to make something rather than just you know, empty copy about whatever. Um, but this is actual instructions that you can then carry out, perform, and best of all, write about. And I know that you've had a lot of traction with readers on these, 
on these tests. Well, you know, we we all want to know how we can use it as a tool. Um, I was talking to somebody who took a class on investigative journalism, and she said that she learned in the class that it's really good for saying, okay, well, I needed to find this out, so I went to this source and this source. Where else should I look? Oh, yeah. You know, so that that's, could be really useful. Yes, very Because useful. she wouldn't necessarily know where else to look because she's never written that story before. Right, you right. Know? So it can help with sourcing and... Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, all the things we used to do in a library. Yes. Which is not... Like, that was not fun for me anyway. Oh, difficult. I loved it. I loved librarians so much. In fact, I was so familiar with librarians in the old day that one time, <laughs> one day I came in and this woman said to me, you cut your hair. <laughs> <laughs> You're wearing new perfume. <laughs> and it got to the point where they would even email me things at home that they found, oh, like, awesome. after I left because they were, you know, so engrossed in figuring out this topic for me. Um that they would really get into it. Yeah, that's uh, that's true. The relationship is wonderful, but think about the time. Yeah, yeah I had to go to so the library yeah. and explain to them what I wanted, and then we'd go down some wrong paths, and yeah. then you'd be sitting at a desk pouring over pieces of paper, and yeah, that was the old school way mm. to do it. I have been lucky enough to write a couple of magazine columns for many years. And one of them, I have to speak with chefs and acquire recipes from chefs. Oh, yes. And then format them. We do not test them. Mm. We don't have the, well, and especially like oxtail soup, like you say, I, I, I don't even know where to begin to get oxtail soup. There's no budget for it. Yeah. But we do have a fact checker. And I'm very happy about that. Okay. Because that's like never anymore. Um not at least for well, the level of publications I'm, I'm writing for. May I quote from my book? Mm -hmm. uh, a friend of mine uh, who worked with chefs on recipes gave me one of the best lines I've ever heard about when a chef writes a recipe. Yes. She said, <laughs> she got a recipe from a chef one time, and the instruction was, roast a duck in the usual manner. <laughs> And that's that, exactly it's, it. That's perfect. <laughs> that's perfect from a chef mindset. Yes. Right? Well, and I get these recipes for like three vats of sweet potato soup where no, 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 oh, no, no, please. No, no. Well, but then you ask them to scale it and they don't know how to do that. No, because they don't make it at home for themselves. No, they exactly. They probably don't even cook at home because no, they cook all day. No, definitely not. Yeah. But it makes me, I see firsthand how inventive each of these recipes is so different. And the authors of the recipes are very fervent about how it should be done. This is not news to anybody. But I'm wondering, from your perspective, do you think that there's a limit to the number of recipes we need for, say, something like pumpkin pie? Well, if you Google pumpkin pie, there's probably over a million recipes right. online. And you're not going to look through a million of them. You're going to look in the search results for probably the first two pages. Whatever floats to the top. Yeah, you're going to look at the first one, or maybe you're going to recognize maybe one of them is from the Food Network or one of the yeah. small recipes. And um, Yeah, you don't, you don't need the other 9,900,000. And yet they'll keep... Thousand people keep writing them yes, and I get do. like I get if you're making so why does anybody ever need another well 
If you're going to write a cookbook, uh, that is a question that agents and editors are going to ask mm -hmm. you is, why should I pay $35 for this book when all of the recipes are available online for free? Yeah. It's a really good question. Yeah. So your job is to come up with stuff that's not online. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't put a pumpkin... I mean, you could choose not to put a pumpkin pie recipe in there for that exact reason. Mm -hmm. Because... I'm not paying $35 for that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I want something else. I, cookbooks are some of the only books I do still... I, I get a lot of stuff from the library mm -hmm. for novels and nonfiction and all that, but cookbooks I buy. Nice. And um, I can't help myself. I mean, I don't do it out of like the goodness of my heart. I love buying them. <laughs> love it. And I feel like I'm not the only one. I feel like cookbook sales are still... They're good, yeah. Pretty great. Well, they went crazy during the pandemic because yeah. everyone was trapped at home. Yes. Especially the bread books when everyone was making oh sourdough. Remember that? Yep. yep. Yeah. But still, they they, they are a big uh, moneymaker for publishers. Yeah. 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 And they're beautiful and yeah, kind of heirloom quality. A lot of them are something to keep. They're more and more beautiful. You know, they have to compete with the net. So they have to be beautiful mm -hmm. objects so that yeah. you feel okay about spending that money for them. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, I've kept you so long that the sun has gone down behind the building <laughs> next to us. So let me just ask you my last question. I know you've been asked this before, but let's say it's your last day on earth and you're super happy about the life you've led. You're like, oh, I did it right. Um, what are you going to eat? What are you going to drink? And who's going to be there? Oh. You're not supposed to get sad. You're supposed to be like wistful and... Are <laughs> uh, only people who are alive allowed no. to be there? Mm -mm. Oh, I'd probably... I'd probably have my want to have a last meal with uh, some of my favorite people who are dead. Mm -hmm. And, uh, cause I'd be joining them soon. And, um, and it would probably, it'd probably be all the food that I grew up eating mm -hmm. because for many people, that's the food that they relate to the most just cause they, you know, ate it their entire childhood and it's connected to love and family and mm -hmm. memories and yeah. What, and I want think... my husband to be there too. Well, sure. What, um, <laughs> can you give me a specific dish? There's an Iraqi Jewish dish that's made for the Sabbath um, called hameen. It's also called tabit, but we called it hameen. And uh, you uh, saute an entire chicken. You stuff it with rice and that's made with spices, maybe um, cinnamon um, and some gizzards and chicken hearts chopped up for flavor and uh then you put it in a a big pan and you fill up the pan with water and rice and some tomato sauce and some more spices maybe baharat which was a iraqi spice that my mother had never heard of um and then you boil a dozen eggs and you put those on the top and put the lid on and you you can you start it on the stove because you want you know with a Iranian rice there's that the tadig at the bottom yes that's oh, yes like crispy. paella yeah yeah 
So um, in our family, that was the most prized part, and you want it to be like three-quarters of an inch thick mm-hmm. and sh- shatter when you bite into it. So there was a lot of fat from the chicken, and uh, I caught my auntie pouring in some extra oil one time and she I mean that's what makes it really good right yeah yeah so you start on the stove for a couple hours and then you put it in the oven and then uh that's on Friday before the sun goes down and then on Saturday uh after you come home from temple you get it out of the oven and uh, where it has been cooking overnight and first the boiled eggs are brown mm. And they taste different. Mm -hmm. They're kind of imbued with chickeny kind of goodness. Mm -hmm. Um, Then there's all the rice. So you got the eggs in a bowl. You got all the rice on a plate. Then you take out the chicken. And you take out the stuffing. And that goes on a plate. And it's different than the other rice. Mm -hmm. Then you cut up the chicken. And that goes on a plate. And then... You have to get out the hakaka, which is the crispy part at the bottom that's mm-hmm. about an inch thick. That's incredible. And the men in the family were always tasked with getting that out of the pot. Um, and then you break that up into pieces, and everybody fought over that, mm-hmm. and that and that disappeared first. And then, you know, maybe put out some radishes and some green onion, and you're done. Yeah, that you sounds sit beautiful. Down. Yeah. Well, thanks for everything, not just today, but in the past. And thank you for everything you do for all of the people who um, you call clients and friends. And yeah, it's been pretty fun to to learn from you. Thank you, Jamie. You did a great job. Thank you. I'm happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> that wraps up another episode of the Consumed Podcast. If you like what you've heard here, please like and leave a review. It really does help. And if you want more information about any of the guests on Consumed, you can find a page of notes for each episode at letsgetconsumed.com. You'll also find a sign-up form for the Consumed newsletter and contact info for me in case you have comments, compliments, questions, or suggestions for people you think should be on the show. I'm Jamie Lewis. Thanks, as always, for listening.